Good afternoon and thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute and today is the fourth and final uh, lecture in our four series part, uh, in our four series program, Healthcare University. Uh, today we're going to be talking about some free market reforms that Congress probably should be considering. Uh, the last three days uh, we talked about uh, three lines in the sand, that is th three things that uh, the members of Congress should resist and that those three things were uh, no public plan, no mandates, and no price controls. Um, for anyone who missed any of the lectures, they all are available uh, currently on our website, cato.org, in the archived events section. You can get full video of the events, uh, in addition to uh, the, the PowerPoint presentations, which are also there. And uh, this lecture, the video of this lecture, should be posted uh, there in a matter of days. So if you want to check it out again, it should be available shortly. Um, our speaker today, as has been our speaker the past several days, is Michael Cannon, the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, he has also uh, previously worked as a domestic policy analyst at the Senate Republican Policy Committee. Uh, he's the author of an excellent book, or co-author of an excellent book, uh, Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. And now he's going to be talking about ways to uh, free the healthcare system. Michael. Thank you, Brendan, once again, and thank you, everybody, uh, for attending, especially those who've been here. I uh, recognize a lot of faces multiple days or maybe even all four days. Um, I appreciate your interest in this issue um, because I think it is uh, the most important domestic policy issue that we're going to face, and admittedly, I'm a healthcare guy, so of course I'm going to think that, but, uh, but there are a lot of non-healthcare people who think that as well. So... Uh, as Brandon mentioned, the past three days we talked about uh, a lot of things that, uh, in, in my view, in the view of a lot of free market thinkers, the government should avoid doing over the next several months as it tries to reform health care. Today, uh, I'm going to be a little more upbeat and try to offer some ideas uh, for positive reforms that, uh, that the Congress should pursue. Now, at the White House summit that he held on health care reform back in February, President Obama said, and I quote, if there is a way of getting this done where we're driving down costs and people are getting health insurance at an affordable rate, have choice of doctor, have flexibility in terms of their plans, and we could do that entirely through the market, I'd be happy to do it that way, end quote. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to take the president at his word. I'd like to explain how a free market can indeed control costs, expand choice, improve the quality and safety of medicine, provide secure health insurance coverage to hundreds of millions who lack it, and minimize the tragedy of unmet health care needs. It, indeed, I would argue that dramatically liberalizing America's health care sector is the only way that we're going to achieve these goals. But before we get started, I want to I add a, a caveat here. Contrary to what former Vermont Governor Howard Dean said about President Obama's health plan, uh, there is no such thing as a perfect health care sector. Former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle put it well when he wrote in his book, quote, even if we achieve universal coverage, there will be some percentage of people who still fall through the cracks. The same is true of reforms that would take health care in the opposite direction of uh, President Obama's plan toward a free market. Health care and public policy are human endeavors. Perfection is not an option. A healthcare sector that constantly strives toward perfection, however, is an option. So the goal of reform, I submit, should not be an endpoint, but rather to establish a process that makes constant improvements in affordability and quality, that makes medical care of ever-increasing quality available to an ever-increasing number of people, 
and that minimizes the number of people in need while maximizing our ability to meet that need. Many believe that healthcare reform should involve a promise of universal coverage, a government guarantee that everyone will have health insurance. And yet, if a free market were, allowed, were, were able to uh, result in even less unmet need, if it came even closer to perfection, I don't know anyone who would hesitate to support that policy instead. So what follows is a brief overview of how a freer healthcare market uh, uh, can uh, bring America closer to perfection than we are today, uh, or than we would be under reforms that leave healthcare markets even less free. So first, let's look at controlling costs. A free healthcare market can contain excessive healthcare costs and cost growth. The key is to let individual consumers control the healthcare dollars their own health care dollars and choose their health plan. And a second and necessary step is to remove regulatory barriers to competition so that health plans and providers can better compete to make health insurance and medical care less costly. Right now, health care costs are growing unsustainably. Uh, they're leading to higher taxes, higher health insurance premiums, and more uninsured Americans. Over the past 30 years, health care spending has grown more than two percentage points faster than the overall economy. And healthcare spending now stands at about 18% of GDP. Now, were that trend to persist, the United States would spend 100% of its GDP on healthcare by 2082. Obviously, that can't happen. But high healthcare costs, now, this would not be a problem if we were getting value for our money, if we were getting our money's worth, or if we were capable of reducing spending where we're not getting value for our money. Yet neither of these propositions seems to hold. The most credible estimates suggest that the United States that spends an alarming one-third of its health care dollars on, on services that make patients no healthier or happier. In other words, Americans will waste more than $800 billion, $800 billion in 2009, about 6% of GDP on medical care that provides no benefit to patients, and additional billions on services whose benefits are not worth their costs. And experience shows that we can't seem to apply the brakes. Now, individual ownership is a cornerstone of free and functional markets, and yet public policy in, in the healthcare area allows government to control more than half of the money spent uh, on health insurance schemes through Medicare, Medicaid, and other public programs, while employers, as a result of public policy, employers control another third. That's a consequence of the preferential treatment granted, tax treatment granted to employer-sponsored health benefits. Now, when instead consumers spend their own money and choose their own health plans, their self-interest naturally leads them to choose plans that eliminate unnecessary expenditures, whether through cost-sharing or managed care, in return for lower premiums. And consumers, when they control their own health care dollars and make their own health plan decisions, will sort themselves into the plans with the approaches that, that best suit their, their individual preferences. So letting consumers control that three-quarters or more of our health care dollars that are right now controlled by the government and by employers will require essentially a two-pronged strategy. For those over age 65 in the Medicare program, it will mean giving enrollees an explicit fixed voucher and letting them choose from a variety of health plans. To ensure that all beneficiaries can afford a basic plan, Medicare could give larger vouchers to poorer and sicker seniors and smaller vouchers to healthy and wealthier seniors using its current risk adjustment mechanisms as well as the data that the Social Security Administration has on lifetime earnings. Yet the amount of each individual's voucher should be fixed so that seniors bear the added cost of any additional benefits that they're, that they're purchasing or they uh, uh, they get to reap the full savings of purchasing a more economical plan. 
And when seniors uh, bear the added cost of comprehensive coverage and reap the economic savings for more economical coverage, th their choices, the, tr the health plan choices they make, will help curb unnecessary spending. Letting people under age 65 control their health care dollars is going to require tax reform. The current tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance lets employers control a large portion of the workers' earnings. Now, nominally, the average employer, quote-unquote, employer contribution to health benefits is about $4,000 for employee-only coverage and $9,000 for family coverage. In reality, the employer contribution is $0 in both cases. Economists agree that if firms were not offering health benefits, labor markets would force them to return the, those funds to the workers in the form of higher wages or, or other benefits. So what we call a tax break for employer-sponsored insurance actually operates more like a tax hike because it denies workers control over a large chunk of their earnings. Giving workers control over that $4,000 or that $9,000 requires leveling the playing field uh, in terms of the tax treatment of employer-sponsored insurance versus insurance that's purchased in the individual market. There are a number of ways of doing this. Tax credits are one. A standard deduction for health insurance, as President Bush proposed, is another. Large, sales, large health savings accounts, as I proposed, is a third. And though all of these reforms, it is, it is true, could result in a small nominal tax increase for some workers. Each would effectively, on balance, deliver a huge tax cut because each insured worker would gain control over $4,000 or $9,000 that their employer currently controlled. Compared to the other options, I would argue, large health savings accounts make that whole process of returning that money to workers much more transparent and much more immediate. Now, when people under age 65 are spending their own money and free to choose their health plan, they too are going to purchase individualized coverage, uh, that, that, and they'll have the choice to purchase coverage that stays with them between jobs. And again, they're going to gravitate toward plans that eliminate unnecessary spending uh, because they themselves will reap the savings. Now, simply giving individual consumers ownership over their health care dollars We'll also have other salutary uh, benefits. It'll increase competition between health plans and providers. Consumers won't be confined to the few, if any, plans uh, or a few, if any, choices uh, that their employer offers. They'll be able to choose from a, uh, different health plans with different benefits, different cost-sharing structures, different relationships with providers, different payment systems. And consumers who, who value physician choice but are currently locked into a managed care plan uh, in, their, in their employer's plan will be able to choose something that, that better asserts, that, that better uh, meets their needs. The same will be true of, of people who are, of workers who are stuck in fee-for-service plans who might prefer to save some money with a managed care plan. As with, um, uh, in addition, because uh, seniors would get control over their health care dollars and health care decisions, the whole regulatory apparatus that's right now necessary to manage the Medicare program would disappear. With seniors choosing from a menu of private health plans, costs would fall as the market would no longer operate under the stranglehold of Medicare's administered pricing system. And provider competition would grow as cost-conscious consumers make greater use of mid-level clinicians for basic care through retail clinics and other settings. Now, cost control re uh, requires more than just having consumers spend their own money, however. There are a lot of government interventions that keep health care costs high by blocking competition from more efficient providers, more efficient health insurance plans and delivery systems, and even more efficient regulators. For example, 
At the state level, uh, there are licensing laws for all, for all types of uh, medical, clini- medical practitioners, uh, healthcare clinicians. Clinicians include physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and, uh, and other advanced practice nurses, physical therapists, opt- optometrists, uh, and, and so, so on down the line. State licensing laws for each of these types of mid-level clinicians define a scope of practice, the set of tasks that these clinicians are allowed to perform. The problem is that uh, these scopes of practice are a perennial battleground for lobbying groups that try to reserve more of the market for themselves by narrowing the range of tasks that other clinicians can perform or the settings in which they can perform those tasks. Ophthalmologists use licensing laws to prevent optometrists from performing surgical procedures. Anesthesiologists use them to block competition from nurse anesthetists. Physicians use licensing laws to restrict nurse practitioners' ability to prescribe drugs, operate retail clinics, as well as uh, to prevent, say, podiatrists from treating the ankle. Regulation is necessary to prevent all clinicians, including physicians, from practicing beyond their competence, but licensing is an inadequate and even harmful way of trying to reach that end. There's no evidence that these clinician licensing laws have made patients any healthier, and yet there's plenty of evidence that those laws have increased the cost of medical care by blocking competition. Similarly, some form of regulation is necessary to ensure that health insurers keep their commitments to their enrollees, and yet state-level insurance licensing laws have shown themselves to be more harmful than helpful. Some states use insurance licensing laws to enact price controls that aim to force healthy consumers to subsidize the sick. These laws typically do little to increase risk pooling, but they do create perverse incentives for insurers to avoid the sick and cause insurance markets to unravel. All states use uh, insurance licensing laws uh, to require consumers to buy coverage for an average of about 38 specific types of health services, whether consumers want that coverage or not. Physicians have also uh, used insurance licensing laws to protect their aut- autonomy and their incomes from insurers who use managed care, co- managed care tools to control costs. Indeed, physicians have even used clinician licensing laws to block competition from managed care organizations that contain costs by making more extensive use of mid-level clinicians like physi- physician's assistants and nurse practitioners. In all, when it comes to uh, insurance regulation, state-level insurance regulation, the CBO estimates that those regulations increase insurance premiums by an average of about 13 or 15%. Now, the most promising way to spur cost-saving innovation between clinicians and insurers and to avoid unwanted regulatory costs is to break up the monopolies that states currently enjoy when it comes to licensing clinicians and insurers within their state. With regard to insurance, that means allowing employers and individual consumers to purchase insurance uh, from another state, uh, insurance that's regulated by a state other than their own. In effect, that gives consumers the freedom to choose the set of regulatory protections that best meets their needs and to avoid unwanted regulatory costs. With regard to clinicians, the, 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 uh, the, the approach is pretty much the same. It means allowing clinicians licensed in Virginia to practice in Maryland or Maine or Montana under the terms of their Virginia license, but still subject to local malpractice rules. That would obviously give clinicians more flexibility about where they could live and practice. Yet its main benefit may lie in encouraging competition by corporate providers of care, such as retail clinics and health plans like Kaiser Permanente or Group Health Cooperative, that operate their own facilities and employ their own staff of clinicians. Those plans strive to make medical care more affordable by using mid-level clinicians to their full competence and avoiding unnecessary expenditures. 
So making state-issued clinician licenses more portable would enable such organizations to compete nationwide without facing new regulatory obstacles in each new state. Perhaps most, perhaps most important, however, these changes would force states and state regulators to compete to provide the regulatory protections that consumers demand while avoiding unnecessary and unwanted uh, costly regulations. States that want to collect licensing fees and want to collect the premium taxes w involved would face powerful incentives to find the right balance between too much regulation and too little regulation, much like Delaware has made itself the go-to state in the market for corporate chartering laws. Now, ideally, state legislatures would take the lead here by recognizing as licensed in their own state both clinician and uh, clinicians and insurance policies that are licensed by other states, yet Congress could act here as well using the power that it, uh, it's granted by the Constitution to tear down barriers to trade between the states, uh, the powers that are granted in the Commerce Clause. So regulatory federalism, as this idea is called, would expand the array of health insurance and medical delivery choices available to consumers, particularly by making, uh, uh, by allowing more competition for more economical choices than existing choices that existing regulation currently holds at bay. Now, few dispute that a free market would actually control, uh, would actually contain health care spending. In fact, the most common criticisms of le letting consumers control their health care dollars is that markets would restrain spending too much, that patients would skimp on care, that many would not purchase insurance, uh, leading to higher costs later on, or that markets would deny coverage to the sickest patients. I think that, uh, I, I think those are very important uh, and valid objections. I'll be addressing them a little later on, but I think it, uh, it's worth recognizing that uh, there is virtual unanimity that, yeah, markets would contain health care spending um, better than at present. What about quality? I think less appreciated is the impact that, uh, that a free market would have on health care quality. Right now, and, and for many years, the U.S. has been a leader in the development of new medical technologies. Of the 10 medical advances in the past 30 years ranked the most valuable by physicians, eight were developed in the United States, either in whole or in part. The, second, the country with the second, uh, that made the second greatest contribution to those uh, 10 medical advances was the United Kingdom. They contributed to the development of just two. So... The United States is clearly a world leader when it comes to developing uh, new medical technologies. At the same time, our application of those new medical technologies, uh, of those advances, falls well short of potential. The quality of medical care in the United States, even for well-insured patients, appears to be well below what it could be. Experts estimate that more than half of modern medical practice lacks adequate scientific support, while experts like David Eddy estimate that as little as 15% of medicine 15% of what doctors do is backed up by rigorous scientific evidence. Even when scientific research identifies effective care, it can take decades for medical practice to incorporate those findings. Patients therefore receive those high-quality interventions only about half of the time. Negligence causes an estimated, according to the Congressional Budget Office, causes an estimated 181,000 injuries in hospitals every year, and according to the Institutes of Medicine, that results in as many as 100,000 deaths every year. Many errors occur because of a lack of coordination among doctors and other clinicians, and because of a lack of basic safety measures, like barcodes and scanners that check for the proper drug and the proper dosage. As I mentioned uh, in one of my previous lectures, Surgeon and scholar Atul Gawan writes that the scientific effort to improve performance in medicine can arguably save more lives 
in the next decade than bench science, research on the genome, stem cell, ther- stem cell therapy, cancer, vaccine, cancer vaccines, and all the other laboratory work we hear about in the news. A free market can improve, on the, I would argue, on the delivery of medical care while retaining America's standing as the world's leader in medical technology. The reason is, in, is this, in economic sectors with significant uncertainty like healthcare, markets improve quality through open competition, largely through open competition between different payment systems. As we discussed earlier, fee-for-service payment encourages doctors to perform more services, even if those services are of, are of marginal value. Fee-for-service payment also discourages quality improvements, such as electronic medical records, care coordination, and uh, error reduction, because providers who invest in those, error, in those efforts end up performing fewer services and collecting fewer fees. Capitation or prepayment, on the other hand, where a provider or an integrated provider organization receives a flat fee to provide care to a population of patients, creates the opposite incentives. Prepaid providers get to keep any money they save through electronic medical records and so forth. That is why integrated prepaid plans like Kaiser Permanente have already deployed electronic medical records and are emphasizing preventive care and care coordination and even conduct scientific research about the effectiveness of different medical treatments. Like fee-for-service payment, capitation or prepayment creates its own perverse incentives. Prepaid providers also get to keep any money they save by denying patients valuable medical care, yet open competition between prepayment and fee-for-service and blended payment systems in between can temper the excesses of each type of payment system. For example, research has shown that competition from health maintenance organizations spurs fee-for-service providers to curb unnecessary services. With competition among different payment systems, consumers would be free to avoid prepaid plans that gain a reputation for denying coverage of unnecessary services. And likewise, because consumers would be uh, free to choose those plans that are offering electronic medical records, that would spur even fee-for-service plans and providers to do the same. Letting individual consumers control their healthcare dollars, therefore, would itself have a dramatic impact on quality. Medicare and the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance have both tilted the, le- the playing field in favor of fee-for-service payment and against prepayment. And those, those interventions have blocked the spread of integrated prepaid health plans um, like Kaiser Permanente, like Group Health Cooperative, and therefore have blocked the spread of, uh, blocked the quality competition, quality competition that they can bring to bear on fee-for-service providers. By the same token, breaking up the state's monopolies of health insurance and clinician licensing would allow various health plans with various payment systems and delivery systems to, complete, to compete on a level playing field. And supporters of integrated prepaid plans, supporters like Stanford economist Alan Entoven, have long recognized that regulation has held back, held back such plans for making greater contributions to healthcare quality. Now, if a free healthcare market is such a great idea, if, it's going, if it can control costs and it can improve quality, why would anyone be against it? Well, there are serious concerns uh, with liberalization and how a free healthcare market would operate. As Tom Daschle correctly observes, there's no way of organizing healthcare that will assure that all needs will be met. And uh, certainly a free market is no obses- uh, exception. On balance, however, I would argue that the benefits of liberalization far outweigh the costs, especially when compared to the stagnation, high costs, and quality problems created by command and control government-centered efforts. So one objection uh, to, to, to free 
and liberalized healthcare markets is that adverse selection in unregulated health insurance markets will cause those markets to unravel. Now, there's a debate over whether lightly regulated health insurance markets will fall apart. Mark Pauley and Brad Herring of uh, the University of Pennsylvania and Johns Hopkins University respectively offer strong evidence to show that they will not, that lightly regulated insurance markets can provide secure long-term protection against the cost of illness. John Cochran of the University of Chicago argues that markets can do even better than they are now and are even striving to do better uh, and provide more, not just secure coverage, but also a choice of insurance plans uh, for people uh, with who already have high-cost illnesses. Leveling the playing field between employer-sponsored insurance and individual markets will, uh, there's uh, some people fear, will leave people with high-cost illnesses unable to purchase insurance. I think that's undeniably true. Uh, I will point out that that is already happening. It's happening both as people become sick and lose their jobs and therefore lose their health insurance and are left uh, sick, unemployed, and without coverage. It's also happening as employers drop coverage because the cost of covering their workers becomes prohibitive. Level the, leveling the playing field, however, will do what the so-called risk adjustment schemes that are part of uh, President Obama's plan and the Baucus plan and even part of Medicare Advantage already propose and attempt to do. Leveling the playing field between employer-sponsored insurance and the individual market in terms of the tax treatment of, of, of those two markets will provide more cash to sick workers, the workers who need it most. The reason is that those workers tend to pay more for their employer-sponsored health benefits in the form of reduced wages. And so leveling the playing field uh, and uh, encouraging employers to cash out, those worker, cash out the workers the value of their health benefits will actually result in older and sicker workers being cashed out more, receiving more uh, than, um, than younger and healthier workers will. I think that large health savings accounts will make that process, as I mentioned, quicker and more transparent and will, would also provide a tax break to the uninsurable, which no other tax reform would do. But this does highlight a problem, even if something like large health savings accounts uh, ends up giving uh, those workers a, greater, uh, a larger cash out than, than other uh, tax reform. Than, um, than healthier workers, even if it does it quicker than other tax reforms, even if it provides a tax break to the uninsurable that, uh, that no other tax reform plan does, a free market will not provide health insurance to everyone. It just won't. Some people will need uh, subsidies. Uh, I think the way that we subsidize the needy right now makes no sense. The Medicaid program is rife with fraud and enrolls a lot of people who don't need to be there. So I would argue that in order, the first thing we should do to meet those needs uh, is for Congress to reform the Medicaid program the way it reformed welfare, to build on those successes by giving states, instead of an open-ended match to enroll more and more people in their Medicaid programs, giving the, each state a fixed amount of money fr from the federal government and the flexibility to experiment with novel ways of covering uh, the uninsured and needy. Now, some will still be imprudent, uh, and, and this is another objection to markets. Some will still be imprudent, won't buy uh, health insurance. They will get sick, and they won't be able to afford the medical care that they need. With an insurance more affordable because uh, there are more choices available and uh, consumers can avoid unwanted regulatory costs, I think that that already small problem will probably be smaller. Uh, but I think that those people will, that, that, that small problem I mentioned is uh, of uncompensated care, as I mentioned earlier, 
comes to less than 3% of healthcare spending. I think it, uh, it will probably become smaller, but even if it, go, if it went up, we should uh, help those people in largely the same way through targeted efforts rather than trying to upturn the apple cart. One thing we can say for markets that we cannot say for healthcare reforms that rely on government is that markets would put the forces of self-interest and competition and innovation to work at the task of making medical care and health insurance more affordable. Unlike government, markets can not only reduce the number of people in need, but also make us a wealthier society and better, better enable us to meet those needs that remain. In contrast, history suggests that government-centered command and control reforms will do little to eliminate wasteful spending, and that's largely because of what uh, Tom Daschle called the patient-provider pincer movement in his book. Patients who fear their access to care will be reduced, and healthcare providers whose incomes hang in the balance tend to form political, powerful political coalitions that lobby against and block government efforts to eliminate unnecessary spending. The patient-provider pincer movement, for example, prevents Medicare from considering cost-effectiveness when deciding whether to cover particular services. It repeatedly eliminates funding for federal agencies that conduct comparative effectiveness research. Now, if you happen uh, to be a conservative, you might think that that's uh, a good thing. You don't want the government rationing care like that. Uh, what that means is the government's going to spend a lot of money on low-value care, so it doesn't actually make government, I would argue, any smaller. It just means that it wastes money on, uh, on, on one thing rather than, rather than on others. Uh, if, if you're on the left, then that's going to be a perennial source of frustration for you because you would like Medicare to be a smarter purchaser and get more value uh, for the dollars that it's spending. But the patient-provider pincer movement also preserves overpayments in Medicare for many specialists and procedures. It blocks competitive bidding for durable medical equipment and, and, uh, and, and other payment system reforms. It has made a joke out of the scheduled sustainable growth rate cuts to, Medicare, uh, to Medicare's physician payments. And the same patient-provider pincer movement has even pushed Congress and state legislatures to curtail private sector efforts to eliminate unnecessary spending uh, through managed care controls. We tend to call these patients' bills of rights. The patient-provider pincer movement prevails because, precisely because public policy prevents consumers from enjoying any direct financial benefit from avoiding unnecessary expenditures. Because government purchases half of all medical care and grants employers control over most of the remainder, uh, the savings that come from eliminating unnecessary or wasteful or low-value spending are not salient to consumers. Consumers are, have, therefore, practically no financial incentive to accept coverage that reduces unnecessary spending, whether through cost-sharing or care management. Um, Alan Enthoven has estimated that, quote, less than 5% of the insured workforce can both choose a health plan and reap the full savings from choosing economically, end quote. So instead, what happens? Consumers resist efforts to eliminate unnecessary spending and with good reason. Seniors perceive proposals to eliminate Medicare coverage for low-value services or reduce excessive provider payments as offering nothing but pain. Workers perceive managed care controls selected by their employers as purely a cut in their compensation and to a large extent, uh, their right. By undermining a cornerstone of free and functional markets that consumers must own the money that they spend, the government creates this patient-provider pincer movement, driving consumers into the arm of provider lobbies where they help block efforts to eliminate waste. The key to containing costs in healthcare is to choose between, is, is that someone has to choose between healthcare and other uses of money. Too often, government chooses health care when other uses would be more valuable. 
And when government does choose other uses of money, patients lose access to valuable care. And until we return, and because uh, government-centered approaches will continue to uh, give people other than consumers control over those dollars, the patient-provider pincer movement will always be with us, blocking the government's ability to contain health care spending uh, and, uh, and certainly its ability to contain health care costs. At his White House summit on health care reform, President Obama said that if there were a way of getting this done entirely through the market, he'd be happy to do it that way. I've tried to argue that liberalization will give the president exactly what he wants from health care reform and that giving even more power to government will not. The president also said that in this debate, all voices need to be heard. Unfortunately, not all voices were invited to participate in his health care summit. Those who believe in the command and control approach to health care reform, they were well represented. The special interest beneficiaries of current and future government interventions, the health insurance lobby, the employer lobby, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmaceutical companies, and the device manufacturers, they were all present. Even supporters of a government-run, single-payer health care system were nestled in the crowd. The one group that was not represented was the economists, the analysts, the thinkers who submit that the reason we suffer from high health care costs and systemic quality problems is that we have allowed government to control more than half of our health care sector already and that allowing it even greater control will deepen those problems. Neither, the, neither thinkers from the American Enterprise Institute, which was recently ranked number five, the number five think tank in the world for health policy, nor any of my colleagues from the Cato Institute, which is ranked number seven in the world for health policy, nor my former colleagues at the National Center for Policy Analysis, which was ranked number 10 in the world for health policy, nor any scholars from any market-oriented think tanks in the nation were invited to the table. It's not too late, however. President Obama can't, still has time to turn a debate over how the government should carve up America's health care sector into a debate over whether the government should carve up America's health care sector or return control to, people, to the people that health care sector exists, exists to serve. So again, I want to that's, that's the end of what I had to say. I want to thank all of you for coming, especially those who came uh, all four days, and uh, be happy to take any questions you've got.